Welcome to Girl, Get a Real Job, a podcast series by Women of the Wick, a platform amplifying the visibility, voices and work of women, trans and non-binary creatives. I'm your host, Sara Karpanen, a multimedia artist, writer and the founder of Women of the Wick. Girl, Get a Real Job is a space where we normalize money and business talk as artists and creative practitioners. To continue the conversation, please find us on social media at Women of the Wick and Girl Get a Real Job. Now, let's start talking about the real worth of our creative work. Hello, and thanks for tuning into the Girl Get a Real Job podcast. Today, we are going to dive into the world of words and books and publishing. I have a very exciting guest with me in the virtual studio. Kaya is an editor at Scrivener UK and she has worked in the publishing industry since 2012. Kaya is also writing her first novel, which is very exciting. How are you doing today, Kaya? I'm good. I'm really excited to, um, to talk about books. But I'm also, I'm not really a morning person. I'm <laughs> really nocturnal, so I get all of my best ideas from like midnight to 5am. I got quite late last night. It's not compatible with um, having like a nine to five job at all. <laughs> Really? How yeah. do you cope with that though? Um, it's got a lot worse with working from home and lockdown because I don't have to sort of go out in the morning. So it sort of pushes like bedtime later and later and later. Fair enough. So what time do you wake up then? Um, nine and crawl out of bed like later, 9.15. Amazing. Um, well done. <laughs> not, not the way that, that I was thinking to start the interview, but um, thanks for sharing. Um, uh, but let's talk about books. Yeah. Um, did you always know that you wanted to pursue a career in publishing? Yes, yeah, so I, think, I think I did. I mean, I always thought I'd do something with books. Um, I suppose when I was a lot younger and I didn't really think about office jobs and careers, I thought I'd be a writer. Um, especially I had quite an unusual childhood. My mum's a writer. Um, she raised me by herself. Um, yeah. My dad abandoned us and did quite a lot of really bad things I won't go into. But she raised me by herself and we were incredibly poor, but she was so, so creative that we spend all of our time painting or making up stories, just the two of us. She'd read to me a lot. She's always writing on a typewriter. We didn't ever have the internet until I, until I went to university. Yeah. So I was kind of incredibly lonely and out of touch with my peers, like either bullied or ignored at school. Also my dad's Chinese, but I didn't have any Chinese family. So I never felt like I belonged like growing up in London. And I retreated into my own little world where I invent stories or read to find comfort. Um, so I always thought I'd, I'd be a writer and it was actually when I was finishing my degree at university and I was thinking about applying for jobs that being an editor on books, not, um, not journalism or anything else, was the only um it was kind of the only thing I could see myself doing. Wow did you consult someone um like how to pursue that career as it's not the most obvious choice necessarily <laughs> especially because I know that you didn't study literature but history right? Yeah um I think yeah it's a lot of people do study English Lit but you've also got history graduates people that have done languages and that sort of thing. Um I didn't actually I was I'm, I'm not a very practical person so I didn't start doing internships while I was at university I didn't go to the careers service I didn't do anything I just kind of did my degree played music did creative things and then had a bit of a panic when I realized that 
I desperately need to get a job. I applied for um for like every single internship that I could think of and every single editorial assistant job that was advertised. Um, and then I actually, I was really lucky. I, um, I got an internship that was two months long and it was paid. And it was a diversity internship scheme that was run by Pearson when they used to own Penguin. So before Penguin merged with Random House. And I don't think without that, that I would have ever been able to get into publishing because, I mean, I grew up in a council estate, I'm mixed race. Like, it's just very difficult to get into the industry um, with a background like that. And I also couldn't have afforded to intern for free, which is what most people used to do, especially back then. I think it's getting a lot better now. So, um, so I did that and I was placed at um, DK that are part of Penguin. Penguin Random House now, and I absolutely loved it there. I had a really, really supportive like manager who I'm still in touch with to this day, and I have like, so much respect for her. Wow, amazing. And like you said, I mean, you mentioned the word inclusivity there or diversity. You are passionate about both of those topics. Um, what's your experience been like, as you said, mixed race um, since you started in the publishing industry in, in 2012? Well, so I've started with something very positive there and that was that was what got me into it and it was great. But overall, and I don't think this will come as a surprise um, to people inside or outside the industry, the industry is incredibly racist and there's a lot of nepotism, so a lot of like cronyism, I mean classism. I don't like that word because it makes me think of like classics. <laughs> like it's it's cronyism, <laughs> let's say what it is. Um, I think for any like POC, it's just a struggle to exist and progress if you ever even get in in the first place. And that is like a tiny percentage of us. Um, after the Black Lives Matter protests following George Floyd's murder, the industry was called out um, just in the US and the UK across the board for tokenistically posting these black squares with statements like, yeah, lives have always mattered when mainstream publishing does not reflect this. Um, right. I work in editorial and that's like the most like why the least diverse area, essentially. Um, I said like about 80 to 90% of books, roughly, will be sort of white stories, white characters by white authors, published by white editors, again? sold by white agents, worked on by an all white team of marketeers, designers. And there's a customer model for these books called Susan, who's like a straight white, cisgender woman, middle-class, two children. And that embodies the whole industry with men at the, a few white men at the top <laughs> yeah i've heard that from uh from many people well the, the men, when i say many i mean the few that i know who work <laughs> in the publishing industry but the ones who do they've said the exact same thing and that the fact that they've become very tired of the of the industry and, and of the scene and one of these uh people who i who i talked with is uh a white man um white european but he he still reflected of those same experiences of just being overly tired of the kind of working in an industry that celebrates the tip of the iceberg of <laughs> the humanity really yeah i mean that's interesting to, that's interesting to hear to be honest yes. um I guess on a personal level as well, you just, I, I'm always like the only woman of color in every literary space. And I feel that is changing slowly now, but mm. that was very much my experience, you know, when I when I first entered publishing and, you know, people have repeatedly like, mispronounced my name for years, just, you know, despite being corrected or like will imply I don't speak English or blame me for things 
that I didn't work on because it's always the assumption that a person of color is probably like to blame, doesn't know what they're doing, don't speak English, doesn't understand the industry. And it's, it's quite dehumanizing because on the one hand, you're completely invisible, you can't progress, you're excluded, but on the other, you're, you're visibly other. You're so visibly other that right. people make strange assumptions that you speak a different language or eat, you know, different food. And yeah, and just repeatedly will ask you, where are you from? Where are you really from? And just things like that, that I experienced so much more in this industry than I did at university or at school, um, which, is, which actually surprises me on reflection. Mm visibly other that is very well said which reminds me of Bernadine Eva Evaristos whose name probably I can't pronounce well oh, that's how I say it <laughs> okay good girl woman other um do you like her yes um, book, obviously <laughs> yeah I have I'm a huge fan I read it twice um I usually use that as an example when I talk to agents actually it's like everything that I look for that excites me in a book um I love anything that's formally and narratively ambitious so the way she sort of not put four points at the end, the way it flows, like mm. kind of has the sort of quality of oral traditions or poetry. It's just really like brilliantly done. And the way also it focuses on all these sort of different aspects of like black womanhood and mm. different characters, different decades of history woven in. I'm a huge fan of that book. <laughs> Which reminds me of your own book. I, I mentioned it in the intro. So you are writing writing a, a, your first novel. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and how? Yes. Oh, I'll never ask. <laughs> I'll talk for so long. Um, I should be more concise pitching, really, because that's what we always tell people. <laughs> so, um, elevator pitch. It's a dystopian literary novel. Um, I my main interest is literary books. Um, really broad taste but I like anything experimental radical so it's dystopian it's set in a world it's the world today but I don't name any places so you sort of this like hazy sense that it could be anywhere and everywhere which is sort of the point um and it's exploring themes like racism capitalism colonialism longing specters and faith it's for anyone that's basically ever fought for change or wish they could undo the past and turn back time and it's also a love letter to the arts inspired partly by the communities around me in East London. It's um, it's very, very dark. I'm quite emo, like a bit of angst. Uh, one character's disappeared into a detention camp and dies there eventually. It's also very surreal and speculative. So there are ghosts that appear. There are like, newspaper interviews. There are songs that I wrote for the book for the characters that have lyrics in there. Um, I'm trying to do something that's kind of radical and experimental with content and form, but at its heart, is this like simple message that the world is something that we make and we we could make it differently so it's inspired by that longing I think that like for me longing turns the world from night to morning like when you can't sleep because you're upset like you can't stop thinking about something whether it's the personal or the political it's like that longing that keeps you awake and I often channel that into either writing or playing the guitar <laughs> that feeling I just want to stay in the space of <laughs> words that you described. Um, you must have read, but I, I love Bell Hooks writing on longing and belonging and mourning. 
as well as another reference that came to my mind is um, Svetlana Boing on nostalgia. Oh, I haven't, I haven't read her. I should, I should make a note of that. I'm interested in nostalgia. It's such a fascinating. It's a fascinating mm. topic. And she talks about like restorative nostalgia and reflective. Well, yeah, I, I haven't read hers, but I've heard about that. Yeah. Like nostalgia is something good versus whether it's something bad. Is that what it is? Yeah. I mean, that would be in a very like, yeah, black and white yeah. like, kind of way to put it. But yeah, in, in the sense that we can, um, um, I've looked at these um, kind of themes in terms of my my grandmother's longing um, for a land that doesn't exist anymore. Um, my grandparents were evacuated from Karyala um, Kirovo, um, uh, which now belongs to Russia. I'm from Finland, so um, and the area was ceded to Russia after the after the World War II. And so she's always talked about this like longing for something that you know, a home that doesn't exist anymore. And then uh, when I started my master's um, studies at the Bartlett, I, yeah, and then I found this kind of, yeah, nos Svetlana's uh, writing on nostalgia and made so much sense to me that we can attach, you know, have this kind of constant longing that is, um, you know, instead of like reflective nostalgia, I'm, I hope that I'm not getting them wrong right now, but you know, that can also create change in a way that can be like a positive catalyst and we can go back to those moments instead of being like stagnant in the, in the space of nostalgia. Anyway. <laughs> I'll, I'll check her out. Anecdote. Um, well, anyway, going back to the initial topic of uh, books and publishing and the publishing industry, um, what I'm also super passionate about talking in this podcast is uh, the gender pay gap. I mean, I've said this probably a thousand times by now, but <clears throat> uh, uh, the gender pay gap is around 26% uh, currently in the creative industry. Like, it's crazy as, as well. You know, there is a huge gender pay gap amongst freelancers. So when we could basically define our salaries still the gap exists now have you ever talked about money or salaries with your colleagues or see this uh, inequality in your workplace or industry um we do it's we do i do talk about money um i feel like it's i have started to it's always an uncomfortable conversation because in publishing whenever you mention money you're always just told there is no money in publishing we do it because we right. love books and you do but it's especially frustrating when companies can, you know, you know, find millions and millions of dollars or pounds to throw at books by extremely right-wing politicians whose views are like actively quantifiably like harming people, like killing people. And then, you know, if you if you want like a five hundred pound pay rise, you're told there's no money, and that it, yeah, that's normally what what happens. Uh, and the reason. I guess the reason people might can stick in the industry is that most people do come from like middle class families. They have parents who will either get them a mortgage or will give them a place to live at home, rent, bill free, provide all the food. Um, but you don't earn enough to really pay London rent prices. And until very recently, most internships are unpaid. Wow. Um, in terms of the gender. So is that, yeah, I'm not sure. I think the, the, the fact that everywhere is doing paid schemes implies to me that it wasn't paid. I think it changed a couple of years ago. Yeah. I came to London, I did a free internship, um, but that which was then kind of compensated by my university. It's a work experience, I think, when it's unpaid and they pay your travel, but yeah. Internships have to... Yeah, sorry, I cut you short there. Um, yeah. But um, in terms of the gender pay gap, it's mainly women until you get to the more senior position. So it's quite hard to like 
right, to, right. like to compare because there are, there's only like one or two male editors that I even work with so and they're more senior than me so it's very hard to compare but based on anecdotes across the industry I have heard stories of people that have you know been doing a job they've left because they couldn't get a promotion they wanted and then like a man who's way more junior than they were has been brought in and given the promotion they couldn't get and paid like twice what they were on so I imagine it's the same thing. Yeah and of course it's not only as you said the gender pay cap but um, but yeah I'm, I'm in minority ethnic groups and um, um, people from black backgrounds they do earn significantly less in general than their white white counterparts so I mean yeah this is something that we need to change. <laughs> yeah and on that point actually another thing I was thinking about when we we're talking about inclusivity is that change is kind of happening slowly so in some I am hopeful but at the same time I often feel like in the past like black and like brown editors or people generally will sort of join as like an intern or an assistant and you kind of you reach like a ceiling you get stuck there and to see like real change that's organic and holistic and not tokenistic we need these people we all need to like rise to a certain level to be empowered to be buying the books we need people in marketing and art that are senior that aren't that junior level that are empowered to make decisions and they're respected and listened to and those people need to be able to basically like publish books because I've got a friend and he always says we're um, we're not going to publish our way out of this problem you know just grabbing books by writers of color is not a solution it makes our output more diverse in quotes I don't really like that expression but um you know the comparison we always use is imagine like I feel like white feminism means that like white women would often understand this to women in publishing imagine if like it wasn't meeting all, all men and the book was written by a man but it designed by a man but it was about women they would they would look at that other women and they would see the optics and they would see a problem and that's often what meetings are like they are entirely like white rooms of people now trying to publish books by like black authors brown authors and it it feels a little tokenistic when there aren't enough editors and other members of staff at a senior level empowered to be involved so that's the change that I'm hoping to see and I think that's the only way we can also get a greater range of experiences and stories not stereotypes and tropes so you know like any book about a Muslim woman often like white audiences white editors will want like a story of liberation so you know she takes her hijab off at the end and then she's liberated and that's that's for a white audience that's the story they want their perception and it's incredibly offensive and I, yeah the only way I think we'll see changes if that happens and if and that means people fighting and to stay in the industry because if you if you're driven out or if you just leave you know it just becomes even more of an echo chamber than it already is. Mm, so many nuggets of wisdom there. Um, going to re-listen to our conversation <laughs> and, and slow down to some of the things that you just said. Incredibly important. Because um, I think we've celebrated this notion of, wow, there are more black authors now, or uh, brown and black authors now that they've ever been. And, um, and, and, you know, the first non-fictional book became a, um, a, a bestseller by a black author. Rennie. Yes. Yeah, Rennie Yellow Lodge. I'm trying to look at, look at my uh, bookshelf in the background, it's somewhere there. Um, but people didn't, like, when, when that was out on submission, like, so many publishers were sort of saying, oh, isn't this racist to white people? Like, it was, <sighs> and now everyone's celebrating it and they're all kind of 
reading it and yeah and that was published ages ago yeah like three three years I want to say I think it was probably longer than that mm-hmm. maybe maybe you're right I mean you're you're the expert in the field <laughs> my um, <laughs> sense of time isn't always the best um well we're also in the space we quite often we talk about the highs and lows we um uh, well as creative pra- uh, practitioners um, could you share some of your perhaps biggest challenges, but also um, highlights that you have? There's two things I really want to say here. I mean, I've touched on the challenges with sort of like the racism and nepotism in the industry generally. So there have been a lot of times when I've just wanted to give up and felt like it was impossible. Um, so when you see, you know, people with the same job title, like handed opportunities that you're actively excluded from, you, you know, you're being discriminated against it right in front of you it just feels impossible it's not within your hands to do anything so I never thought I'd start acquiring books and so I guess the like biggest highlight for me was to acquire my first book it's like the proudest moment in my career because it's something that I fought for and made happen it wasn't given to me at all and I'm also just really proud because the book itself is something I care about so much it's a brilliant immersive um feminist novel by a Nigerian author called Irene Zodafan and it's called Tomorrow Become a Woman. It explores womanhood, sisterhood, motherhood, female friendship, abusive relationships and I really hope that women everywhere will see themselves in these women. Uh, it's based on real women known to the author so I'm so excited to, um, to bring that into the world. So that, yeah that was one of the things I wanted to say, real highlight. That's just a super exciting. Are there any challenges? um with this book specifically or just no just in general in your career perhaps I felt like that was a huge challenge getting to the level of being able to like buy books as opposed to and and that since that's happened I've met a lot more agents and I've acquired more books but that was like the kind of I don't know the mountain that I thought I would never you know climb that I thought I would never get there so that is the big that is the biggest challenge that's been overcome and I kind of wanted to say what really helped me keep going when I had doubts that it would ever happen I guess again it comes I'm kind of obsessed with the idea of faith I'm not religious but just faith generally and um when I I read this book in 2018 I think um I was really really struggling with with my career at the time um I had really poor mental health I developed OCD from like anxiety which was being gaslit and questioned all the time and I had a lot of like mental health problems. And I read this book called The Incendiaries by R.O. Kwan, who's my favorite author of all time. I'm like obsessed with her. She knows. <laughs> I her name again? R.O. Kwan. She's Korean American. And it's actually inspired by her own loss of faith, um, religious faith. She was Catholic. And word for word, I think it's the most brilliant book I've ever read. And it just moved me when I'd, um, I'd stopped writing myself in 2014. I stopped doing quite a lot of activism as well. I kind of had my own loss of personal and political faith. And then I was having loss of faith in like publishing my career, like my future, everything, when I read this book. And it it was just so, I'd never read anything like it before. I mean, I think previously I always tried to sort of pass as white in terms of my taste and my appearance. So I'd like bleach my hair, I'd, you know, I'd, read all of the kind of literary authors from a previous generation because, and they were all white men essentially. So to, to sort of, to fit into the world that I wanted to be in, I, that was what was out there. And obviously that was what I, I then thought I liked and read. And it was, it was very, I felt so seen that there was this like 
not just Aura Kwan, there's this new wave of like Asian American writers like Pam Zhang, um, Ocean View, there's, and they're all writing these really like experimental, beautiful literary books, winning prizes. Um, and yeah, I felt seen, but it also just inspired me to keep going because I was, I was, I want to, I want to be acquiring these books and editing these books and writing, you know, writing one one day. So it, when I was experiencing a lot of challenges, that was kind of actually the thing that um, pulled me through it. And I honestly keep a copy. I've got it here, copy this book with me at all times. I am obsessed with it. I open pages of it, just random pages and read them all the time. Um, so if anyone reads like one book, I would say read that. Wow, I love when books become these like best companions. I used to carry, um, <laughs> such a cliche, <laughs> but I used to carry, <clears throat> um, the, um, oh my God, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. <laughs> and, you know, it's such like a thin book as well that I was able to carry it like wherever I went. I mean, I think there's already a third copy that I have because <laughs> I've just always had it with me. Not anymore, but yeah, that was definitely one of my 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 big ones. Um, so if someone is listening to this um, episode right now and thinking, I mean, I know that there are so, like publishing a book is a dream for so many people, including myself. Um, and so how can we pitch a publisher? How can, so can you, can you walk us through the process in a nutshell? I'm Absolutely. sure, you know, this takes quite a lot of time to explain, but if we can share some of your nuggets of wisdom. Uh. I'll, um, I'll keep it quite concise because there's so many kind of terms in it. Absolutely. I'd say a good starting place is look at books that inspire you or that are similar to what you want to do and see who published them. Look in the acknowledgements and see if they mention their agent because and then look at that agency website, look at the agent's clients. Um, a lot of publishers, big, especially big five publishers, mainstream publishers only publish um, only accept submissions from agents. So if you want them to consider your work, you need to go to an agent who would shape the work with you help you pitch it and then pitch it to the publishers but um there is another approach you can sort of look for like smaller indie presses that some do accept unagented submissions um and even bigger publishers do you know they'll do writing competitions mentorship mentorship schemes like the Walter State Bame short story prize and penguins right now so um there are there are ways um when it comes to pitching if you're going down the agent route you'll be pitching the agent and Obviously, it doesn't need to be perfect because they can, you know, they'll, they'll have so much like expertise and they'll have thoughts on it themselves. Generally, when pitching anything, if it's a non-fiction book, you need a chapter breakdown. So for each chapter, a contents list of saying what you're going to cover. Um, and it's helpful to have a little bit about you as the author, what you've done, your social media platform, unfortunately, <laughs> what, you, what else you've written, even if it's articles. And titles it it's helpful if you can you also can have an idea of like titles that you think it's similar to or like but then also how it's different why it's timely why it's important why it's special um so that would be that would be like in an in an absolute nutshell if you're if you're writing a novel generally speaking especially with unknown or debut authors you do need the whole thing to get sell it not necessarily to an agent but to a publisher because helpful to know what happens and to read the whole thing whereas with non-fiction you just need the proposal often like the idea itself is what we're buying um if that makes that makes sense yeah okay so first starting to read seeing what else is out there with publishing those books um yeah right. um, yeah 
I'd say also like look at some of the smaller indie publishers, especially if your work is like radical and experimental because they're doing such incredible work and it's really hard for any smaller publishers to survive. You know, I mean, Penguin's Murder of Random House, Simon & Schuster, their own um, part, like Scribner's part of Simon & Schuster being merged with Penguin and Random House, you're gonna have like a super, super, super giant. And yeah, I know some incredible um, small indie presses like Influx um, and they put so much work and they find these books that are so you know, sort of so like different and new and books that like I think big five publishers would totally overlook and then they make them brilliant and successful and then the authors get stolen because once they've had success big publishers roll in with lots and lots of money and it's just really sad seeing that pattern happen over and over but you know just look look for like lots of different publishers that you might not have heard of if you're not in the industry basically just research like um, you can find them quite easily. And is it uh, crucial to have an agent or can you just go If they accept unagented, it's a really horrible word, <laughs> submissions, then no, it's not um, you, you can just send your work. Often they go out as well, like all publishers will do is they'll often approach people too and go out and pursue an idea if they want to do a book, um, if they want to do a book on something. So. Okay, thanks so much. So what, I mean, I, hmm. um, know that you read and write probably all the time <laughs> is there anything else that inspires you outside the world of books yeah so I love playing the guitar I um I taught myself for like a year in 2013 to 14 and then stopped playing which I alluded to and I took it up again in lockdown my method for playing was I just listened to the same song by Joan Baez I was in rust over and over and over until I could play that and then realised I couldn't play anything else. But um, I am a classically trained musician. I played violin for really yeah for about like eighteen years as well. So music is a big thing. I really like trad folk music. I'm incredibly incredibly uncool. Um, What's that music? Sorry, traditional folk. <laughs> Amazing. Like proper old man music, basically. <laughs> man and a guitar. Yes, banjo, like all of that stuff. Um, I like singing protest songs as well. Other than that, I feel freest and happiest when I'm by water. So if I'm in London, which I am most of the time, because I can't afford to go on holiday, <laughs> obviously, I love, I'll walk by the Thames for sure. I really like the area near Wapping at low tide. That landscape really inspires me to write. Oh, and activism is hugely important to me as well. Mm. What are your, your courses, the most important courses you support? Um, I feel like... I take a very intersectional approach. Everything's related, obviously, Black Lives Matter, Stop Asian Hate, um, Free Palestine, Kill the Bill. <laughs> Those are the hashtags I'm like throwing. Environmentalism, yeah, just, all of it. So everything's related to me, obviously. Yeah. Couldn't agree more with you. Um, is there anything else you would like to add that I didn't perhaps uh, get to ask? Um, I think that's... I think that's everything. I was going to say, in publishing, you also do all of your reading outside of work time. So often on the evening, the weekend, that's when you're reading things that agents submit to you that you might want to buy. And it kind of works a bit like it's an auction. It's often an auction, it varies, but they'll submit, agents submit their books or proposals they get from authors to lots of different publishers. Generally speaking, you bid on it. Um, and because you're getting so many of these submissions in, you don't have time to read them during the day. You do a lot of reading outside of work and in your free time. So you learn to read so quickly. You can, you know, you can turn around a book in like half a day. Amazing. Hey, I do have one more question. Mm -hmm. 
a random one. Um, do you have, um, have you got like a five-year plan or this kind of, do you, are you someone who, you know, thinks in the future or, or yeah, I don't know, schedule things, would you? I, that was I not wasn't. a very concise question for me. <laughs> no, I know <laughs> what you mean. I wish I was. I'm really impractical and very kind of like, airy and I'm a water sign I don't know if I actually believe in astrology but I'm very um very free-spirited so I'd like to have more of my I'm really obsessed with finishing my novel but I actually um I find it incredibly hard to concentrate on one thing so I'll either I'll often feel really like I can't stand still and I'll be kind of pacing around in circles imagining stuff in my head or I feel like exhausted and won't have energy to write for like weeks on end and then suddenly I'll be burning with ideas and I'm in the shower so I have to like run out and get my phone and type on the notes out. So I, I do find it very hard to like stick to stick to a plan and be focused, which is a real problem for me. I, I do I do so many different things, like so many different creative projects. But my as I've kind of spent my 20s like it's just experimenting and exploring with that sort of thing, I am really obsessed with just finishing my novel but not putting a I put so much time pressure on myself like you're too old you're never going to succeed and then that sort of becomes a spiral and becomes very negative and it stops me from writing so I'm kind of just trying to sort of let it happen when it happens but kind of gently nudge myself to <laughs> give it time and attention. So true so beautiful is the novel by the way because you said mm -hmm. that you, you you've um you started writing since you were a kid and you didn't have internet so are those stories like a part of the novel? Um, I put a lot of the sense of like loneliness and belonging in there. Um, one of the characters, it's told from the point of view of four different characters. Um, one of them is in the first person. It's the one I want the reader to feel close to. She's called Maya and she's a refugee. So the, obviously the idea of like displacement home um, race comes into it. And I put a lot of my like some of my own feelings into that but I put my own feelings into all four of the characters I think more fiction is biographical in that sense. Yeah we talked about this previously which I think you know we just always put our personal stories into into writing I mean I think that's okay and normal. Yeah it is normal all, all my favorite authors talk about it and it made me feel so relieved to be honest that it's okay that's that's where inspiration comes from. Right so true Kaya, thank you so much for um, for spending time with me and sharing these, um, yeah, stories and knowledge and everything. Thank you. I really loved it. I've never never been on a pod podcast before. Yeah, your first one. Yeah, <laughs> first one. Um, yeah, thank you so much. And where can you where can we find you if people want to find more about your work? Um. I'm quite bad with social media. I'm I'm on Instagram, which is my name. Your social media, your Instagram page is amazing. Don't say you're bad at it. I'm sort of forced to use Twitter for work, but I hate it. I find it quite right. stressful and toxic. So I don't check it very often, but I'm, I, I like visuals. So Instagram, I like sharing lots of- What's your handle? It's my name, Kaya Shang. Okay. So you have to find it when- Go find Kaya's work and writing and book reviews there. And if you like this episode, subscribe to our YouTube and Apple podcast channel. Thank you so much for, for joining. Yeah. Bye. If you like this episode, please review it or share it with a friend.